So I'm going to ask you, if you would, as we step into our study of the Word of God together as part of our worship of our great and awesome God, let's head to the book of John, the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, then comes John chapter 20. If you'll make your way to John chapter 20, if you need a Bible this morning, Dennis is ready to hand you one of those. And if you don't own a Bible, then you keep this Bible. Let it be our gift to you this morning. There's a note page in your bulletin also, church family. If you would grab a hold of that, that would be great. So today we begin a new study series here on Sunday morning. And in our sites, as you could tell both by the note page and the screen and where I asked you to go, our attention is going to be given to a study of the Gospel of John. I'm always personally excited when we launch a new book study, but I'll have to tell you my adrenaline is flowing even more today because, brothers and sisters, there simply isn't another book in the Bible that is quite like the Gospel of John. And I am really excited about our opportunity to study it together. It's been called God's love letter to the world. And that works. That really does work. Martin Luther, the courageous Reformation leader of the 1500s, whom the Lord used so powerfully to recover a biblical gospel that was nearly lost to religious corruption, he once wrote these words. He says, were it possible for a tyrant to succeed in destroying the Holy Scriptures and only a single copy of the book of Romans and the gospel of John escaped him, Christianity would be saved. <laughs> and, and I would just add my amen to that. If we have John, we have Christianity, the truth that saves. Some of the best-known, best-loved verses in all the Bible come out of this gospel. In fact, what verse instantly pops into your head when you hear the word John? John 3.16, absolutely. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you're a football fan, you're probably going to see that poster in the goal at the end zone uh, today on television. Somebody will have John 3.16 on a poster. But there's John 5.24. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Crossed over from death to life. Your version may say that. In John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Or how about John chapter 10, verse 11? I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep or in 1125 outside of a of a grave jesus says i am the resurrection and the life and in chapter 14 these beloved words let not your heart be troubled believe in god believe also in me in my father's house are many rooms if it were not so i would have told you He's going to prepare a place for us. And in verse 6 of that chapter, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. 
And we say amen and amen. Because of these and many other verses like them, John's gospel has been a source of unspeakable blessing, eternal blessing for 20 centuries of God-seekers. Perhaps no other Bible book has been the means by which more people have come to know and to believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior than the book of John. And that alone makes John's gospel worthy of our very best efforts, doesn't it, church? Yeah. Now, when we start a series like this, it might seem like the best place for us to begin would be at John chapter 1, verse 1. When Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz asks the good witch how to get to the Emerald City, the good witch says, well, Dorothy, always, it's always best to start at the beginning, right? Just follow the yellow brick road. That hurt, that hurt to do that. <laughs> now, that, that advice seemed to serve Dorothy quite well. Start at the beginning, and you'll get where you want to go. But church family, for us, that might not serve quite as well as beginning at the end. And that's why your Bible is not open to John chapter 1 in this moment, but to John chapter 20. So follow me to verses, 20, uh, to verses 30 and 31, where John actually tells us why he writes this 21-chapter gospel. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The Gospel of John is a Holy Spirit-inspired presentation of Jesus Christ, who he really is and what he has done to save sinners. It's an eyewitness account from one of Jesus' closest disciples. It focuses on the last three years of Jesus' life and especially on his death and his resurrection. And John's purpose could not be more clear, church family. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is writing to awaken faith in unbelievers and to sustain faith in those who already believe. And in this way, lead both of those groups, the believer and the unbeliever, to have eternal life with God forever. That's the purpose of this book. Now, John is known in history as the Apostle of Love. That's a title that has been given to him. And the reason that he carries this title is because he makes reference to love more than 80 times, 80 times in his writing. But John is also passionate about the truth. He mentions truth 45 times in his gospel and in the epistles. Love 80 times, 45 times truth. But church family, 100 times in this gospel alone, John uses the word believe. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
We put all of that together, and John wants us to know the truth about Jesus so that we can confidently believe in Jesus, who he is and what he's done for sinners, and enter into an eternal personal love relationship with God through him. That's why he writes this gospel. That's the purpose. That's the message. That the eternal God, infinite, transcendent, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, everlastingly unchanging, the one true God, the living one who is at the same time three distinct persons has come into our world, put on flesh, lived our life, died our death so we can have his life. That's why he writes the Gospel of John. And so our goal in this series is going to be really simple. To discover, proclaim, and believe the truth about Jesus Christ that will awaken faith in some, hopefully many over the course of this study series, awaken faith in some as sustain and deepen the faith of those of us who already believe. And so that's why I gave this series the super complicated title, Jesus, Know Him and Believe. <laughs> Couldn't get much simpler than that, right? Know Him and believe. Okay then, having begun at the end, let's now head for chapter 1 and start at the beginning. You'll take your Bible and go there. And as we do, we engage three of the most amazing, mind-boggling, soul-gripping verses to be found anywhere in the Bible. In fact, can we read them aloud together, church family, right off the screen? I can't think of a better way for us to step into this book than for us to read these verses aloud together. Let's do it right off the screen. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And there's a resounding amen that goes with that. Church family, do we have any idea how staggeringly glorious the truths are that we just proclaimed together. Do we even have a clue? These are truths that can enter the heart of a child and do that even as they blow the mind of an angel of heaven. And here they are, these verses sitting before us. What a gift. What a gift. Now, if you know anything about the other three Gospels that lead off our New Testaments, if you know about Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know that they begin very differently than these words from John chapter 1. Matthew begins his Gospel with Jesus' genealogy from Abraham up to the time of Jesus. And, and then he talks about Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Mark starts off his gospel talking about the baptism of Jesus and then moves through his life after that. 
And Luke leads off with the background story of John the Baptist, his birth, and then Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. And so these three Gospels, they were all written in such a way as to let Jesus' true identity grow in the reader's mind over time as you proceed through the reading of their book. The reader is, is, is reading about Jesus and, and continually asking, is this who I think it is? Could this be God in the flesh? As they walk us through Jesus' life story. But not John. <laughs> not John. It's like John is shot out of a cannon, man. He, in effect, says, in the very first words, out of the end of my pen, I want you to be blown away with the true identity of Jesus so that there's no confusion, there's no, there's no misunderstanding. John means for us to read every word of his gospel with the clear, almost incomprehensible, amazed knowledge that Jesus was and is the eternal second member of the Trinity, that he is God, the God who created all that is and then stepped into what he made so that he could lay down his life and save us from hell. John wants us to know who Jesus is and he wants us to know that right away. When we see Jesus at a wedding in chapter 2, when we see Jesus with a religious leader in chapter 3, with a woman by a well in chapter 4, or with a crippled man in chapter 5, or, a, or in a storm-tossed boat in chapter 6, or rescuing a woman from certain death in chapter 8, or caring for a, a man born blind in chapter 9, or attending a funeral in chapter 11, or riding a donkey in chapter 12, or washing men's dirty feet in chapter 13, or in, on, a tri, in, on trial for crimes that he did not commit in chapter 18, or or hanging between criminals on a cross in chapter 19, John wants to make absolutely sure that it is never out of our minds that this is God. God of very God. The one true God. So that by the time we get to chapter 20 and the resurrection of Jesus, we simply have the final confirmation of what we have known all along. God, God came, conquered death, defeated hell, and offers us life. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. It took John more than three years to figure out the true identity of who Jesus was. He doesn't want us to take more than three verses to get to the very same place. He wants us to have in our minds fixed and clear from the opening words of verse 1 all the way to 2125 who Jesus really is. He's God. He's God. Now, brothers and sisters, as we step into these opening verses, we are immediately confronted with what strikes us as a rather odd term, the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word 
was God. We know from verse 14 of this chapter that the word is who? Well, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And the word became flesh, verse 14 says, and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory as as of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Clearly, the word is the Lord Jesus. But John doesn't actually use that name, Jesus, until he gets to verse 17. So why does John say in the beginning was the word rather than in the beginning was Jesus? Surely he must have a good reason, right? I mean, he's Holy Spirit inspired, so it's got to be a it's got to be a good reason, even if it seems a bit odd to us for him to start out with that term. Well, he does have a good reason. Many Bible scholars believe John uses the word, which is the Greek word logos, here, as a way to bridge into two cultures at one time, into two worlds, the world of the Jew and the world of the Gentile, the world of the Greek, the non-Jew. For the Greeks, logos was a term, as a term was associated with impersonal reason, philosophical wisdom, deep thought. If you know anything about the ancient Greeks, man, they placed a premium on this thing called logos, wisdom and reason born of logical thought. That was huge for them. And for the Jews, the word logos would immediately take them back into the Old Testament where the words of God were inseparable from God himself. When God spoke, that was divine, powerful logos, God expressing himself. And I say there are many fine scholars who think John is strategically using this term, the word, to bridge into an unbelieving Jewish world and into an unsaved Greek world, seeking to connect both of them to Jesus with this term, right out of the blocks. And perhaps that's true. But I do have to wonder if it's more simple than that. Church family, what are words? What are words? I mean, we use them all the time. I am using them right now. What are words? Whether they're written on a page or sent out through the air, what are words? Well, on a page, words become the visible manifestation. Remember that word, Manifestation. It's going to come back in just a moment. Words become the visible manifestation of invisible ideas residing in the mind of the one who writes the words. Does that make sense to you? Sure. Without the written words, we would never know the idea or the thought or the wish that was residing in someone. So the words make what's invisible visible. When we speak words, those are perceivable sounds that we can hear with our ears, they represent otherwise unperceivable thought in a person's mind. Words make known what is otherwise unknowable. Could it be that John calls Jesus the word because he has come to see him as the ultimate visible and audible expression of the heart and mind and intentions of invisible God. 
Could it be that? The truth that Jesus taught and the life that Jesus lived become the the ultimate, visible, audible truth of God. God's word in flesh. Jesus, in his coming, in his living, in his teaching, his dying and his rising again, is for John the ultimate, final, decisive message from God to a sinful, lost humanity. Jesus is the word. Does that make sense? To put it more simply, what God wanted to say to us more than anything else, he could say best through Jesus. The word. So as John begins his gospel, he has in view all of the revelation, all of the witness, all of the glory, all of the light, all of the words that come out of Jesus through his teaching ministry, as well as all of the truth that comes out of Jesus through his living and dying and his rising. And he sums all of that up by simply saying, Jesus is the word, the logos, the final, ultimate, decisive, absolutely true and reliable, visible expression of the thoughts and intentions and indeed the very heart of God. He's the word. As a matter of fact, I wonder if John isn't saying exactly what we find in the opening two verses of Hebrews chapter 1. Notice the connection. The writer of Hebrews says this. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by what? By his son. The word. The ultimate decisive message of God to us. Does that make sense? Say yes. Yeah. Okay, good. good. It makes sense to me. I want to make sure it makes sense to you. Now, if you flip that note page over, church family, what John wants to do in these first three verses is give us four absolutely essential truths about the word, about Jesus, that will shape and define how we read the next 21 chapters. And I say truths about Jesus there on your note page because for John, it's all about the truth. Remember, he loves that word, truth. For him, it's imperative that that we know at the very beginning of this gospel that Jesus is eternal, that he is God, that he is the second person of the Trinity, and that he is the not made maker creator of everything that exists, everything that exists. If Jesus is not all of these, then he's not and cannot be our savior. That's how essentially important these four truths are. So let's take them in turn. Truth number one. Jesus is eternal. Verse one. In the beginning was the word. In verse two, he was in the beginning with God. The words in the beginning, do they immediately take your mind, Christian, to another verse somewhere else in the Bible? What verse would that be? 
Genesis 1.1, right? The very first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, do you think that's coincidental? Huh? No. No. This is Holy Spirit-inspired scripture. This isn't coincidental. No way. Genesis 1.1 makes no attempt to explain the existence of God. It simply states the truth that before there was a beginning, because beginning implies time and the presence of time and space and things, before there was a beginning, there was what? God, our God. There was God. Self-existing, outside of time, eternally existing, before the first second ever appeared on the clock. In the beginning, God. Doesn't try to defend it. It's a truth that's simply declared. God is before time. God's eternal. John begins his gospel by locating Jesus for us in precisely the same way. In relation to time, namely before time. Before there was a beginning. At the beginning, Jesus already was, John is saying. Self-existing outside of time. Are you with me? All right. Jude, the author of that that little one-chapter letter near the end of our Bibles, exalts in this truth with with his great doxology that we sometimes end our morning services with, Jude chapter 1 verse 25, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. What are the next three words? Before all time, and now and forever. And we say, Amen. In the beginning, before there was time, there was the word, Jesus is eternal. The Apostle Paul says this and even more in 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. Check this out. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God had a saving plan for us, which he centered in the person of Jesus before there was time and space and things, before the ages began, and which now has been manifested, remember I asked you to remember that word, manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. What do words do? They manifest the invisible, unperceivable thoughts and purposes and intentions that someone has. Jesus, the Word, made known God's savings and intentions, which God had purposed before time in Jesus. A plan that would abolish death, bring life and immortality to light through the gospel. So before there was any time, any matter, or anything else existing, there was the Word. There was Jesus Christ. There was the Son of God. John said in 2031, these are written so that you may believe 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus is eternal. Amen? Amen. The second truth John wants us to know is that Jesus is God. And here we confront the essence of Jesus' identity. Who he is. Verse 1, at the end of verse 1. And the word was, say it church, God. Which in the, in, in the original Greek text reads, Theos ein ha logos. God was the word. The word was God. You can flip them over and do them no harm. They are the same thing. It's a staggering truth, church family. The Word who in verse 14 put on human flesh and came to live among us, Jesus Christ, was and is God. One of the special features of this amazing gospel is that, as we're going to discover together, is that some of the weightiest doctrines are delivered to us in the very simplest forms. This could not get any simpler, nor could it be any more weighty, right? Let it be known loud and clear that Idlewild Bible Church, indeed all churches that truly are loyal to Jesus, but this is the one that we call home. This is the one we are responsible for. Let it be known that IBC is is a church that worships Jesus Christ as God. And never less than that. We fall down as the disciple Thomas did before Jesus in John chapter 20, verse 28. And we confess with joy and wonder, my Lord and my God. When we get to John chapter 10 in our study together, we're going to watch as the Jewish religious leaders confront Jesus. They hate him. They're intent on killing him. And here's what they will say in John 10, verse 33. It's not for, good, for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. We cry out, that's not blasphemy. That's not blasphemy. This is who Jesus is. He's our Savior. He is our God. The Word was God. God was the Word. A staggeringly glorious truth. Just four words. And yet the clearest, most direct declaration of the deity of the Lord Jesus that we will find on the pages of our Bible. Now just as a sidebar, church family, You might have a Jehovah's Witness one day stand on your porch and tell you that the word was God in John 1 is a mistranslation of the original Greek text and it should read the word was a God with a small g. They will tell you this because they believe Jesus is actually the archangel Michael, who for them is the highest of all created, created 
beings. And so the word was a God with a small g. Brothers and sisters, not only is that abysmal Greek exegesis. Verse 3 of this this chapter is, is rendering that interpretation of this text impossible. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. To make Jesus a created being is the very opposite of the point that John is trying to make. Even the Jewish religious leaders got it and they hated Jesus. You being a man, make yourself God. They got it. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God. In other words, all that makes God, God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Is there anything confusing about that as, as to the identity of Jesus? It means that, and, and really church family, you need to understand what this means for us. This means that as we study the gospel of John, we are going to get to spend week after 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 week because you know how we do it here. We are going to get to spend week after week after week getting to know God. To know Jesus is to know God. Jesus will say in John chapter 14 verse 9, If you have seen me, you have what? You've seen the Father. You've seen God. Do you want to know God? Do do you want to know God? Then study John with us. Study John with us. And invite others to come. And meet God as we study John. Church family, did you know that less than 2% of the people who go to church ever invite anybody to come to church? Do you know that? I would challenge you to invite somebody to come to church with you. And you could even tell them, if you come to my church, you're going to meet God. See what they do with that. Jesus is eternal God. John wants us to know that. Now, if Jesus existed at the beginning, he pre-existed time and space, and if he existed already before anything was created, then he has to be uncreated. He is the uncreated one. He is God. But God. But John doesn't want to stop with just that. That would be enough, wouldn't it? The third truth John wants us to know is that Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. He's the second person of the Trinity. In the middle of verse 1, the word was, what's the next word? With God. The word was with God. And in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Here John takes things even farther into the relationship that exists between Jesus and God, even repeating this twice to make sure that we don't miss it. 
Jesus with God. And here we bump up against this great, yes, mysterious doctrine of the Trinity. Jesus is God, 100% God. We just established that. Yet he has a relationship with God. He is with God. He's the image of God, perfectly reflecting all that God is and standing forth from eternity as the fullness of deity, but doing so as a distinct person with God even as he is God. That's what John is saying. How is that possible, you ask? To be God and with God at the same time. Church family, I don't know. That's a mystery. If I said I didn't know, you should fire me right now. There is one divine essence, God, who also self-exists in three distinct persons. John mentions two of them here. God the Father, God the Son. We're going to meet the third. God the Holy Spirit later on in this book. And I can't wait for that. Because the Holy Spirit is so poorly understood by most of us, we're going to get to study him together. I can't wait for that. We try to explain the Trinity with earthly examples. They all just seem to kind of fall short, though. The Trinity's like water, right? You ever heard that one? Existing as a solid and a liquid and a gas, but all the same essence, H2O, right? Or the Trinity is like the sun, existing as matter and as heat and as light, but all the same essence. Or, this is one I don't really care for at all, the Trinity is like an egg, shell and white and yolk, but it's all one egg. Or the family, a father and a mother and a child, distinct persons, but they all have the same family name. Well, these are all nice tries at at Trinity concepts, but they all break down at some point. The Apostle Paul said it correctly, I think, in 1 Corinthians 13. We see in a mirror dimly, right? We see in a mirror dimly, and we know only in partial ways, and how true that is. If we're going to believe in an infinitely great God, we better get comfortable with mystery, right? Especially when we talk about the Trinity. Though we may not be able to understand the Trinity, we dare not ignore it. It's absolutely essential to our right understanding of Jesus, who is fully God, but with him as a distinct person at the same time. That's important. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus said it this way. Last words before he ascends into heaven. Go, therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't explain the mystery. He simply affirms it's true. And the Word was with God. Jesus is eternal. He is God eternal existing as the second person of the Trinity. John has told us that much. And the fourth essential truth John would have us know right out of the gate, Jesus is the not made maker of all the things that exist. 
Verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And we say, Amen. Amen. Hallelujah is right. When John told us that the word was with God, he was telling us about Jesus' relationship to God. Here in verse 3, he's telling us about Jesus' relationship to us, right? Our world, his relationship to our world and, and, and beyond our world. The word who put on skin and bone and lived our life and taught us and loved us and died for us and rose for us created all of it. Wherever it is, Jesus created it. He made it. And not just what can be seen, right, church? He made what can't be seen, but still is real and exists. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says this, For by him, Jesus, all things were created. All things. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. He's before the first things existed. He's eternal. And in him, all things hold together. The maker is also the glue that keeps it together. Christian, your savior, your Lord, your friend, Jesus, he's your maker. He's my maker. You exist because of him. And so do I. Now, as important as that truth is, that nothing exists that Jesus didn't make, John is actually saying even something more important than that. And that is that Jesus is not made. That's what he's really saying. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus was not made. Now, suppose a Muslim or a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon says, Jesus was not God. He was not eternal. He was created, the pinnacle of created beings perhaps, but still a created being. What if someone says that to you? Brother, sister, what if, what if someone says that to you? Jesus is, is a created being. What, what, what are you going to say to that? And by the way, when a Mormon or a, a witness or a Muslim or anyone else says that to you, you just need to know that you are actually hearing a heresy. That comes out of the 4th century. That's how old it is. It comes out of the 4th century. It's called Arianism. And, and, and then that's, that's what you're really hearing. Is Arianism dressed in maybe modern day garb. Arius said. There was when Jesus was not. That's, that's Arianism. In other words. Jesus was made. He is a created being like the rest of us. But John wrote verse 3 precisely in such a way to make that heretical assertion utterly impossible. Look again at verse 3. 
John does not just say all things were made through him. We might think, well, that's enough. That, that says everything I need to know about that. But John doesn't stop there. He says Jesus is not a creature. He created creatures. But someone could conceivably say, yes, but all things does not include Jesus. It includes everything but Jesus himself. Jesus created, was created by God, and then with God he created all other things. Someone could say that. But John doesn't leave that to the reader. He slams the door on this heresy immediately, adding in the last part of verse 3, and without him was not anything made that was made. What do those final three words, that was made, add to the meaning of without him was not anything made? Church. These last three words make explicit and emphatic and crystal clear that anything, anything in the category of made things, from galaxies to subatomic particles, from physical beings such as ourselves to spirit beings in the unseen realm, any made thing was made by Jesus. Are you hearing that? It was made by Jesus. He made it all. And if Jesus made all that is made, he made all things, then he has to be what? He has to be unmade. He has to be unmade. Those last three words drive a a stake through the heart of every Arian heresy that says there was when Jesus was not. Ha! How could that be? Jesus is unmade. He's the not made maker of all things that exist. Eternal second person of the Trinity. God of very God. How do we end? How do we end our time? Here's how we'll end. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask you to read one more time with me. Not just as a a response to a thought that Tim has here this morning, but as a declaration. I'm going to ask you to read off the screen with me the four truths about who Jesus is. The Jesus we're going to learn about and study about and get to know and in the process get to know God. Let's read it aloud together. In the beginning was the word And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.